Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scotty. Uh, Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Joe Kernan. Here's what's ahead from tech to real estate to semis to consumer discretionary. All at all time high, or a lot at all time highs. The broad list, it's growing. We're going to look at where the opportunities still might exist right now. Plus, it's about to get bad. Perhaps why one analyst says retail investors and consumers will be in for a wild ride the fallout from the coronavirus as that continues. And why the stock market doesn't seem to be concerned about the rise of Bernie Sanders in the polls. But we're going to begin with today's markets. <laughs> and Tom Chu has the number. We're on the same wavelength. We're on the same wavelength for so many things here. But, but you're right, because the markets don't really care at all about anything that's going on right now with regard to coronavirus or anything else, or so it seems. The reason why I say that is because you're seeing a lot of green on the screen, Two-third percent gains in the Dow, the S&P up a half a percent, and three-quarter percent gains for the Nasdaq. We're going to put little stars next to every one of them because that denotes that they've all, at some point today, hit record intraday highs. So, again, very bullish tone to the markets. We'll see if a pullback ever does happen and what that catalyst is going to be. One other place we're seeing a bullish move today is in crude oil prices. But, again, the chart kind of puts it in context for you. We are up 2.5% for WTI crude, $51.28. But remember... From the highs from within the last 12 months, we are still down about 23%, so a very bearish trend overall long-term for crude. Nonetheless, those coronavirus fears easing, 2.5% upside. And we're going to end with our stock of the day, a massive move higher in Shopify, 12% on the heels of earnings, better than expected, profits better than expected, revenues, also the outlooks better than expected. And remember, this stock, look at this. 214% gain over the course of the last year, and it's been almost a double, Joe, just over the course of the last five or six months. We'll send things back over to you. Wow. You got your phone? I do. Go check out my Twitter account, and and I want you to answer what I just tweeted out, because that's not my experience, what I see. I'm going to go to it. I'm going to get on it right now. Golf makes you live longer because it relaxes you, and you have less stress. I thought it was the exercise. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dom. All right. Uh, as, uh, as Dom noted, the Dow and the S&P have set uh, new records day in and day out, intraday highs today as well. Let's take a closer look at the rally extending beyond the U.S. The ETF tracking the MSCI all-country index, world index, is also at an all-time high, along with the German DAX and the Eurostock 600. And back in the U.S., sectors at all-time high uh, include technology-led, uh, sector by semiconductors, finance, uh, financials, consumer discretionary, real estate, and industrial. So what's driving those record highs, and can anything uh, bring it down for more? I'm joined by Craig Callahan, founder and president of Icon Advisors, and Matt Roddy, uh, vice president and portfolio manager at Rockland Trust. And Craig, i just start with you because uh, you point out this has been a, a market that people haven't believed in for a long time. It's at a fairly rich valuation, although uh, interest rates are low, but you still think it's undervalued by 16%? Yes, we never use PE or price to book. We compute intrinsic value. And today we find the market to be about 16% below 
our estimate of fair value. So we would expect it to move higher over the next year. Weird, because you, you do point out some of the positives, but then you go on to say that most of the positives, if you want to uh, mention some of them, most of the positives are reflected in the 18.5 PE that we're looking at right now, but uh, yet you still think there's more left in the tank. Yes, the outlook for earnings can support higher valuations. Uh, we just don't see the overpricing typical of peaks, and we haven't for the last 11 years. All right, uh, Matt, we, with that in mind, can you give us some of, your, uh, some of the stocks that you think are, are still viable uh, at levels? And, and I made the point that stocks that hit new highs uh, a lot of times hit more new highs, and the reverse is true for stocks hitting new lows. So I'm not saying you shouldn't buy at new highs, but it would be nice to pick some that maybe have more to run. What are they? Yeah. Well, the names I have uh, on the list today are Cerner, um, Sherwin-Williams, and J.P. Morgan. None of them are at all-time highs, although none of them are too far off of them either. They all uh, have had good, have really good returns like the market has. I mean, but the market ran 30% over the last year, but earnings really haven't grown for a lot of companies. These companies uh, are really the exception. Cerner is a great healthcare IT company, leader, leader in their space. They've got, you know, um, they've got all the data, and data is king in that space. They've got 250 million uh, people's records for data, and they're doing a good job of growing internationally. So that's, that's one name I think you can look at. All right, hold they've that thought. A little bit of a, well, I'm going yep. to come back to you in uh, just a second, Matt. But uh, if I have a chance to go to Santelli, I like to do that. And there's actually some important news uh, in the bond market right now. The 10-year notes, Rick Santelli tracking the action. Hey, Rick, what's the demand like? You know, the demand for this auction, Joe, in the grade form is a B as in boy. It's definitely above average. Let's go through it. $27 billion. This is the first offering. We always have the first major offering and two reopenings in 10-year note yields. Uh, the yield at this Dutch auction, 1.622. It was exactly priced in the middle of the when-issued market. 2.58 bid to cover is the big profile plus in this auction. That's the best since March of last year. All the rest of the metrics, 61.3, a bit above the 10 auction average, 14.8 on directs, a bit above uh, 10 auction average. Gave it a B, could almost have been a B plus. There is a total of what? Uh, we have 16 billion to bound, first time 30s. We just finished 38 billion in threes. And all of this supply seems to find a home, Joe, as interest rates continue to go down. And even though 162, would you lend your money to Uncle Sam for a 162 yield? Apparently many would because there's many yields that are even less uh, interesting than ours. Back yeah, to you. Like negative ones. All right. Uh, thanks, Rick. All right. Now, so, Matt, I'm going to come back to you now. Uh, are you going to be able to start where you finished, or you need to go back to the beginning and start all over? Well, well I, I think that bond news is pretty interesting. I would say the bond market is really kind of acting as the big brother of the stock market, and that's why the stock market can be a little bit more blissfully ignorant, maybe, around these valuations and grow, because the stock uh, market is providing, I mean, the bond market is providing some good what other, cover. What other names do you like? Uh, J.P. Morgan, leader in space, leader in private banking, leader, leader in investment banking, leader in credit cards. Number one management team, best efficiency ratio, double-digit growth in every important metric. Number one investor in technology in their space, and they're growing. They're growing internationally. They're growing. They've entered China as the first bank in the U.S. They've actually entered uh, 70 new branches. They're actually entering the Boston market as we speak uh, with the retail banking. So it's not a bank that isn't, you know, it's happy to sit where it is. It's continuing to grow. And then uh, the last name is Sherwin Williams, again leader in its space. Uh, had a Valspar acquisition that's going very well. 
um, did have a little bit of a slight, slight hiccup and lowered their guidance. But they did that last year, and then throughout the year, the guidance came back up, the earnings came back up. So they had a little bit of a, a blip, and it might be a chance to get back into the name because, uh, you know, when you look at the valuations, it's, it's, it's rich like the market, but it has right. really good dr- growth trends with double-digit growth in all categories again. Craig, let me go back to, to the macro and, and just ask you if, number one, what, what, how do you think the coronavirus situation plays out? And, and depending on whether it's favorable or less favorable, uh, do you stay domestic? Do you go around the world, small cap, big cap, multinationals? What do you do? In, in terms of our valuation readings, it's giving us a lot of opportunity in consumer discretionary. Those seem to be hit, uh, the cruise ships, hotels, anything travel-related. So we're seeing uh, what look like bargains in consumer discretionary because of it. I- internationally, we still favor the U.S. market over international stocks. We, we like them. We just like the U.S. better. I've had uh, people come on uh, uh, one of the earlier shows here and say that populism and nationalism is a, is, a, is a really a global phenomenon at this point and uh, that maybe you should stay with, uh, with companies that do business in their individual countries and, and maybe, uh, maybe not go multinational as well. Is, is that, do you see that in your work as well, Craig? I don't see that distinction. Uh, we're, we're more sector-oriented, so what I pick up on are, are sectors that are on sale, out of favor. In addition to consumer discretionary, industrials, financials also appear very attractive. Okay, good. All right. Uh, thank you, Craig Callahan and Matt Roddy. Uh, appreciate you. Uh, coming on today. And here's what's ahead. Uh, what else is ahead on The Exchange? Coming up... Why one analyst says it's not just retail earnings that will take a hit from the coronavirus. Consumers may want to get ready for shortages. We'll look at the names most at risk. Plus, sensationalist and politicized. That's what Microsoft is saying about Amazon today. We've got the details. And the corporate tax increase hidden in the White House budget. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The number of coronavirus cases keeps climbing. More than 45,000 cases worldwide. See whether we really believe that number, including 13 in the U.S. The total number of deaths also, is this accurate, now stands at more than 1,100. Singapore, has now reported 47 cases of coronavirus, one of the highest number of cases outside of China. Uh, What's happening there may be an ominous sign of what's to come here. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, saying that half of Singapore appears to have sustained community transmission of coronavirus and maybe three to four weeks ahead of what could unfold in the U.S. This could be bad news for retail, uh, one of the sectors most exposed to any supply chain uh, disruptions. Joining us now... Ike Borishow. He's managing director at Wells Fargo Securities, which just completed some channel checks with its logistics contacts and finds that the risk 
is rising rapidly. So not the virus, but the risk from the virus is rising. What, what, what tells you that in the channel check? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to, when you think about retail, there's, there's two different components of what we want to discuss. One is revenue risk. So global brands who have 10 to 20 percent of their revenues in China, we've heard from five to 10 of them thus far. Um, revenues are basically zero percent uh, or excuse me, zero dollars right now. That's how bad things are. 50 percent of stores are closed and the stores that are open are comping negative 90 um, the other side of it that I don't think people are talking about enough is on the supply chain. Um, these companies source a lot of product out of China, a lot of product out of Asia. What we're kind of hearing right now is that, you know, the, the Lunar New Year being extended kind of uh, created a buffer. But in the next couple of weeks, if these factories are not back uh, up to capacity, if, employ, uh, if workers are not back working, this is going to create a lot of headwind because we have spring and early summer product already kind of on the way. But the back half of this year, we might, have, might not have merchandise on the shelves if this doesn't get cleared up in the next couple of weeks. That's the biggest unknown and risk to the group, we think, right now. And it, you like to talk as a group, you know, not individual names uh, as much, but we are going to show some of the names that might be, be more effective. But at Wells Fargo, you actually cover a, a category of retail that, that is not based on uh, whether it's like dollar stores or... or uh, mainline retailers. What, what do you cover? So, you so can, we you cover can... the specialty retailers and the global brands. The, the report we put out was our entire consumer team. accessories. And... Yes, yes. So I'm the apparel guy, the footwear You're guy. You're the accessory. apparel, footwear, yes. and accessory guy. Yes, we try. <laughs> That's pretty uh, specific and pretty uh, niche-oriented, but we, have, we are showing some of the... But do you have... I mean, Walmart and Target, are, are, are these names? And I, again, you don't have to recommend them or not, but these are names that they're very widely held. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if people immediately think they need to worry about those, do yeah. they? So our broadline analyst covers them, so I won't speak to those. But what I will say is yeah. I think that a lot of investors are just focusing on revenue risk overseas today, um, and they're not thinking about that. Even if you are a 100% domestic retailer today, um, you're sourcing everything from China. And, and the, one of the key things that we're learning is it's not just if you've diversified away from China. Um, these other areas outside of China, like Vietnam, for example, they source raw materials from China. Think uh, trim, think zippers, think cotton. Stuff is not coming in and out right now. So th- the real point here is that there's just a lot of disruption in the supply chain. And again, that creates a lot of uncertainty uh, for the back half of the year. And, and again, I don't think that's where people are focusing. Right okay, now. so the next couple of weeks, in your view, are, are critical. critical. Yes. So what will be the data points that you'll be watching for to make a determination about whether, you know, whether it's going to be better or yeah. whether things are getting worse. I think, you know, PBH, uh, who we cover, for example, put out, put out a release today to, to give some, some details. I think you'll see maybe more of those. You know, we're about to kick off uh, uh, the majority of Q4 earnings season. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be hearing from the majority of these retailers on their calls. They're going to have to talk about some of this stuff. So I would say you're going to have plenty of data points on conference calls and press releases over that time. But even the, the information we get from the companies, they can see what's happening in their own business, but they don't know any more than we do about the actual extent of, uh, you know, how bad the epidemiology of the coronavirus, sure. which I don't think any of us have a handle on Absolutely. right now, do you think? No, no. Uh, in terms of that, no one, you know, everyone's crystal ball, is, I mean, at least mine, is extremely cloudy. So I don't think they're trying to forecast any of that. I think they're just trying to look at what, you know, what, what's in the system right now, what does their supply chain look like, and then secondarily for the global guys, because some of these global guys, they do 20% of revenues in China. That's a big deal when you're talking about a very high margin revenue stream, which is kind of getting shrunk down to nothing. In, right in your view, when you hear 45,000 cases, do you think that's low? And, and if it is low, is it by a factor of two or by a factor of more than two? Yeah, I think you probably talk to people who are a lot more educated and smarter than I me don't know. on, on I, that it's, kind of it's, stuff. <laughs> we, we were trying to decide that this morning because 
you know, the, the symptoms, if you're, if you're not elderly or, or young or, or immune compromised, you, you may not even be diagnosed. Uh, so I don't know how we can get a real handle uh, on that at this point. So I don't know how you can do your work at Wells Fargo without knowing overall. I mean, it, there's just a lot of, all we, lot all, of wiggle room. Yeah, all we can talk about is what's happening today. So the revenue dynamics we know today because the companies have copied You see it. companies with down 90% comp so have, sales. Yeah, so we have companies that they will say uh, 50 to 60% of their doors are closed, so zero revenue. And the others, there's essentially no one walking in. Um, so think comps down 75% plus. So... Yeah, and it's a big deal. Um, and for the club, for the global guys, they do anywhere from ten to twenty percent of revenues there. So it, it, it's problematic. Just think about some of the brands who have lowered guidance on the out quarter. Companies that have eight to ten percent of sales in China lowering guidance by thirty five percent. That's how meaningful that revenue stream is for these guys. I just don't can't think of any other instance where same store sales could be down ninety percent. That this is very unique and, and something that. To, just kind of shake your head at I Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, will you call me when you in a couple of weeks and let me know? It'll be my first call. My first call. All right. And for more on the coronavirus, uh, tune in to CNBC's special report, Outbreak Coronavirus, live tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, the FS in plasma. No, we've come through the numbers, and it, that's, that was for the director. And it looks like uh, the new White House budget has some hidden corporate tax increases. We'll break it down. And Bed Bath & Beyond. A sinking after giving a sales update, Jim Cramer had some strong words about the company earlier today. Here's what he said about the CEO. He gave no guidance last time. When, he's, when he did the quarter, he gave no guidance. Last night, he cut guidance. May I remind him he had no guidance. So whatever advice he got from what lawyer, from the chairman, I think all those people need to be broomed and broomed yesterday. You do not cut guidance when you have no guidance. I mean, that is like, did they go to college to get stupid? <laughs> what do you really think, Jim? Anyway, we're going to look at what the, what the company may be doing to turn itself around. And a reminder, you can always watch us. Uh, or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two minutes. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here are some of the movers this hour. Shares of Lyft falling more than 9% after the company uh, reporting results. The company posted a wider-than-expected loss, but uh, revenue did jump uh, 52%. Lyft forecasts slower uh, growth in the new year as ridership uh, stagnated in the second half of 2019. And Micron among one of the top performers in the S&P, up nearly 5%. Uh, UBS upgrading the stock to buy from neutral uh, and raising its price target by $30 to 57 The analysts saying that the time has finally come uh, when Micron can materially outperform over a sustainable uh, amount of time. And shares of Western Union are on pace for their largest drop since July of 2015. The money transfer and payments company reporting a drop in both profit uh, and revenue. All right. Now, now, right now, to Sue. <laughs> Sue Herrera. <laughs> Hello, Joe. I, I, I milk it, Sue, when I get a chance to talk to you. And I, I just appreciate do. That. I just do. It's good to see you, Sue. It's good to see you as well, Joe. 
Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The verdict is in for a Chinese woman arrested at President Trump's Mar-a-Lago property in December. A jury found Liu Jing not guilty of trespassing, but guilty of resisting arrest. Jing claimed she didn't see any signs warning her to stay off the property, but she faces up to a year in prison for the resisting arrest conviction. On Capitol Hill, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer blasting President Trump for intervening in the sentencing recommendation for his longtime confidant, Roger Stone. Left to his own devices, President Trump would turn America into a banana republic where the dictator can do whatever he wants and the Justice Department is the president's personal law firm, not a defender of the rule of law. And some very scary moments at the annual big wave surf competition. Surfer Alex Botello wiping out in huge waves off the coast of Portugal. Rescuers on jet skis trying to get to him were also tossed about by the waves. Botello was rushed to the hospital where he is listed in stable condition. He was actually sandwiched between two waves, and it was a very, very scary situation. Unbelievable. But hopefully wow. he's going to be okay. Back to you, Joe. Okay, Sue. Uh, yeah, we hope so. Anyway, Sue, thank you. Hey, Sue. Yeah? Here's what else is coming up on the exchange. Excellent. Ahead, WhatsApp is defending its encryption policy as it surpasses 2 billion users. Microsoft is blasting Amazon. Is it time to regulate genetic testing companies? And why the markets don't care about Bernie Sanders' rise. It's all ahead on The Exchange. Okay, let's catch you up on a... Ed Lee, I can't help it. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire here with their take. A New York Times corporate media reporter and CNBC contributor Ed Lee, who I feel like we work together. We love him. We work together a lot. Morgan Brennan, I don't get to see that much. Hi, Morgan. And Hi. Clark Kent, uh, also known as, uh, as Robert Frank. Uh, what do you do? There's no phone booths. Makes it much more difficult. You go to a Starbucks. <laughs> There's always one somewhere. That's right. That's right. First up, <laughs> shares of Bed, Bath & Beyond are plummeting. After warning on same-store sales, CEO Mark Tritton uh, says the company is experiencing, in his words, short-term pain. Citing increased promotions, falling store traffic, and inventory issues. This is uh, really pretty hideous. BBY shares are down about 20% on pace for their worst day ever. For more, let's bring in and welcome CNBC.com retail reporter Lauren Thomas. Lauren! Hello! Can you hear that? Do you have an eye? Yeah, yeah I can hear it. The applause. The, the applause. Was great. How are you? I asked for, I asked for that. We haven't even met, but I figured, what the heck. Let's, Why not? Uh, yeah. This the is applause. the warm welcome, so, Joe. Is Lauren, so, uh, I understand they, st- they still don't sell bath or beds. It, it still don't sell beds. See, that's right yeah, there. You can get uh, everything else beyond the bed. Right, bed, yeah. bath, and beyond. Hence right. Bed. But what, we're trying to figure out what really happened here inventory right uh, yeah, I think it was, well they said it was a whole host of things it was inventory management which a lot of retailers struggle with um, so not having the right things in stores they said there was a lot of out of stock through the holiday season so again they they came out last night after the bell and reported preliminary results for the fourth quarter they won't actually report the fourth quarter until later uh, in April but they said same store sales were down about 5.4 percent overall analysts were expecting a drop closer to three percent so that was worse than expected. Uh, sales in stores were down 11%. They tried to make up for that by saying online sales were up 20%, but 
but it's still, you know, when you put all that together, it was still just not a good, not a good picture coming into the new year. I, I, I've never been a retailer, but I, I think you have to work to be down 5.4 percent. I mean, it just average. You seem like it's, what, yeah, what changed it's not between good. a year? What, what changed? Right. Well, so they've got a new CEO, okay. um, and I think the story, what we're seeing this morning with shares down so much, um, is everyone. So Mark Tritton, he was the former chief merchandising officer at Target. His first day on the job at Bed Bath & Beyond was November 4th. Um, so right in the midst of the holiday season, he took over. Um, but just looking at his track record at Target, he did a really great job there, building a lot of Target's private label brands that now they're, they're really recognized for. Um, and so I think the bar was set very high for him, and there were high expectations. The stock ran up with a lot of that news. Yeah. Um, and then in December, he came in and ousted six uh, people in the C-suite, so really cleaned house. And then so off of that to then see these disappointing holiday results, it was like, okay, this turnaround with Mark is going to take a little bit longer than we anticipated. Okay. But I think there was a lot of surprise at first. It was like, all right, this guy from, from Target's coming in and he's going to turn things around right away. But now it's like, all right, it's going to take more time. And that's what I'm hearing as I talk to analysts this morning yeah. uh, and the reason for that. that you know anything? You're, I mean, you're a media guy. Uh, well, I mean, I see it as still an Internet story, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. It seems like this turnaround, they haven't really sufficiently transformed you know, into online sales. Amazon's still beating everyone up on that that score. Just personally speaking, I remember I bought something from them online and it, it never came. So I had to like, hey, you never sent it. And then they issued a refund, but I'm like, you lost that sale. But how do you have traffic yeah. down and you run out of inventory? Yeah. You have empty right. shelves. Like that just seems so basic that your traffic is down and you still have stuff you're running out of on the shelf. That seems like a management, it's basic management issue. Not a good look. Yeah, here's the other thing. When they reported earnings in early January, it was Wall Street saw it as a kitchen sink Report the fact that he pulled right. guidance. The numbers were gnarly. Then he Apparently, also cited the fact that Cyber sink, Monday, a little bit and of the, the sink was yeah, left. but that yeah. the Cyber yeah. Monday was going to fall into this Up current quarter. Um, and even with this current quarter, seeing same store sales down five point four percent. If you adjust and take Cyber Monday yep. out, they're down thirteen percent. Yeah. Okay, maybe it wasn't a kitchen sink. It's going to be a lot more painful. In the meantime, you did see those shares rip higher right. in anticipation. Okay. And, what, and one thing, what will be interesting to see? Let's not forget they also own Christmas tree. Ch- Christmas tree shops, Bye Bye Baby, Harmon Face Value, Bed Bath & Beyond has all these other businesses as well. It could potentially divest some of that. All right, Lauren, thank you. You're, you're, you. you're a dot-com person. I am. You were amazing. You're welcome. And more applause. Joe, applause. Uh, next up, uh, Microsoft firing back uh, at Amazon Web Services amid its uh, defense contract dispute, calling the claims in Amazon's lawsuit, in their words, sensationalized and politicized rhetoric. kind of tend to agree with this. Amazon claims Microsoft was awarded the government's Jedi contract unfairly, alleging the Pentagon gave it to Microsoft under pressure from the president, who hates the Washington Post. That's maybe. Anyway, the uh, company filing a motion in federal court seeking testimony from President Trump and the defense secretary as part of the complaint. When this happened, Morgan, I I just think that it, it, it sells... Uh, Satya Nadella and, and efforts at Microsoft short. And, and it, there was a delay in warning it because some of the other companies that wanted to get this contract were suing. So there was a yep, delay. Exactly. And, and Microsoft was able to get its act together with a really competitive offering here. And, and just being bitter and just immediately, you know, saying this is you're doing this completely. But what? 
Why? Uh, okay, I mean, okay. I mean, All right, but you tell me, Morgan. What, what really happened here? Did uh, Bezos hate? It's been extremely controversial. It was supposed to be a very fast competition process. The whole essence of this was basically to start migrating, in a broader sense, uh, the Pentagon over to the cloud and this idea of using what's already been created commercially uh, adopt it to this high security, high, highly sensitive uh, abilities within the DOD. It took 18 months. You had that pre-award um, bid protest from Oracle. So you saw a lot of right. controversy there. Now you're seeing the protest with Amazon, which is not unsurprising because this sure, happens when it comes to procurement and government contracting. And all their former employees are over at the DOD, too, that, right? That's not, I mean, that's not the case. I mean, but, well, there was the whole, that was a whole reason, one of the reasons for Oracle suing uh, in the middle of this before the competition was actually right. awarded was because of conflicts of interest. So this has been very dramatic. It continues to be dramatic. It's not the first time we've seen a dramatic Does Jeff Bezos have to own everything? Contract. Does he have to be, I got to see him at the Oscars. I got, you know, he's flying up to space. And my packages are... Does I, think it's, have, I think competition is good. I think, I think not putting all your eggs in one basket is a good thing, too. But at the same time, Amazon was front runner for a while in that day, right? right? They, yep. they do CIA's cloud services, basically. And, yep. you know... You saw the joke. As, as he as he you writes a check in the bank balance. So, but you're saying that Microsoft was, was... You agree with Microsoft's claim that Amazon is being political in their rhetoric. Yes. I think it was, a, I think, a, look, a, you I think it was to, an easy... Uh, contention to make without I think, any I think the president's I think the president's words on this have made it difficult to say otherwise from Amazon's point of view, even if Microsoft right. is right. Yeah, I mean, you had Jay Carney on CNBC earlier today saying blatant, blatant political interference, that's their side of it. That being said, it's great that this is the process yeah. that's going on because once all is said and done, whatever's decided in the court of law, right. um, it gets put to rest. He got divorced and he's still the richest man in the world. No, and- <laughs> all right, let me go. I don't, never mind. Then... Um, you heard those. Right? I'm not going to repeat it because I want my tag- packages to come on time. So I'm not. <laughs> yeah, that's the last joke uh, that they made. Exactly. Uh, my, I'm toast. Uh, then this Facebook-owned WhatsApp hitting a new milestone. Um, CEO Will Cathcart revealing that the message app now has more than 2 billion users. Uh, in a Wall Street Journal interview, it was the first time in two years it has disclosed user numbers. And Cathcart also doubling user privacy, defending uh, it's encryption practices and users' ability to communicate privately. He also said WhatsApp uh, will continue to operate independently of Facebook, which has been a sticking point uh, for federal regulators. Is this your thing? Well, no. I, look, it's a little ironic because, remember, Jan Coombe and Brian Acton, the two founders of WhatsApp, re- resigned from the company two years ago, essentially under complaints that Facebook, which had promised to leave it alone, was starting to encroach on the privacy. They were starting to get Facebook to, to receive all the phone numbers of the users, and they were trying to unify the platforms, and that's why they left. So it's a little rich for the CEO now to come out and say, we're WhatsApp, we're $2 billion, and we are protecting your privacy. But at the same time, that the same article, the same interview, they, they made clear that they're still working on trying to make WhatsApp interoperate with Facebook's yeah. other apps, like Messenger and, and Instagram, which aren't secure, which don't have end-to-end encryption, at least not on a default setting. So how can you, on one side, be saying, we really believe in encryption, but we want it to work with these other things that aren't encrypted? I think they're trying to have it both ways. Yeah, Yeah. and this is the bull case for Facebook, right? Finding Mm -hmm. ways to better monetize not only Instagram, but WhatsApp. And it does seem like this whole idea of advertising on WhatsApp has been scrapped in the midst of this encryption debate. Thanks for taking your jacket off. I, you know what? I, I come on. You play I come along. On your thing. You know what? It looks like you're working, doing because I am calls. working. Okay. All yeah. right. Well, it, certainly, it looks like it. And finally, the gold. <laughs> the Golden State has a new. Tr- oh, he's not. He's not working. I never worked. He's too good looking to take and, the, uh, the Golden State has a new target: DNA testing kits. A California state senator 
is calling for more oversight of direct-to-consumer genetic testing firms. Citing privacy issues, she claims current consumer protection laws aren't strong enough to protect user data from getting sold to third parties. It's been a rough go for the genetic testing industry. Both 23andMe and Ancestry.com have uh, each laid off dozens of employees amid declining sales. I, you know, I've never done this, and I already. You're the you're the bio guy. I want to find but, out. I know. I've already. I was adopted. I already found ten brothers and yeah. sisters. I, I never <laughs> you had. You didn't need. You didn't need the genetic testing. But why? No, you, I, why but I just think it's slowing down. I would tell you that it, you know, as far as third party and privacy, some of the stuff you can find out that you had no idea about when you see this, it's like, wait, that doesn't. I'm not related to my brother. <laughs> I mean, then you got to start asking some questions. Do Hard you questions, not? I mean, right. don't we exactly. need to? To you know, we always let everything go first and then ask questions later. I think we need to think about this. I think not? I think it's a good provision, at least in terms of trying to protect the data. I think a lot of people sign up for these things. It's it's, it's not cheap, and that data is sort of put into something kind of central database that. And here's the thing. Law enforcement has made, taken advantage of this database and in yeah. some cases have solved sort of decades-old crimes. So it can be useful and helpful. Okay. At the same time, I think some users... There's another reason why you it. haven't gotten it, right? It's all this <laughs> but it's exactly. useful and exactly. helpful, but you're talking about not only your data if you're the person who's testing, but maybe other family other members' people? data, too. Exactly. I'd hate for employers and others to... Insurance companies. Insurance companies. Yeah. All kinds of... Uh, opens up a, a Pandora's box. <sighs> Parting is such Which a is sorrow. I know it's a short. I know it's a short. I'm going to miss all of you, more, not yeah. just you, uh, Ed. Uh, you too, Robert Morgan. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, one and all. Coming up, um, shares of pharmaceutical giant Teva up today on uh, earnings, but down nearly 30 percent over the past year. 2020. 2020. That's how Barbara Walters says it. It's off to a good start, however, with a nearly 40 percent gain so far. CEO joins us live to talk earnings, the coronavirus, and the opioid crisis. And that overhang on his company, that's next. The exchange is back in two minutes. Oh, welcome back uh, to the exchange. I was talking to Meg. Shares of Teva Pharmaceuticals jumping more than 9% on better than expected earnings. The world's largest generic drug manufacturer beat across the board. Stock has been on a tear lately as Teva uh, turns things around. Meg Terrell uh, has more on that. Hi, Meg. You have a guest. Hi, Joe. I sure do. But before we get to our guest, I want to tell you a little bit about the background. When Cor Schultz took over as CEO of Teva in November 2017, the company was in need of a turnaround. The stock had lost 80% of its value from its 2015 high as Teva and makers of other generic drugs faced a number of incredible challenges. Pressures on the price of generic medicines, a huge debt load, and a massive antitrust suit alleging price fixing in the generic drug industry. Now, Schultz's tenure since then hasn't come without its own set of new challenges, namely thousands of lawsuits over the company's alleged role in spurring the opioid crisis in the U.S. Now, as those cases approached trial, Teva said it had reached a tentative settlement with four state attorneys general. It would donate $23 billion in addiction treatment medications and pay $250 million over 10 years. But not all parties have accepted the settlement offer. Still, the stock seeing a major recovery since then amid those actions and so many others. And joining us now is Cora Schultz, the CEO of Teva. Thank you for being here. Uh, you detailed all of these moves you've taken in the last two years today. Uh, where are you in the turnaround process? Are you complete? What happens now? So we are through the first part, which was the uh, restructuring, where we took our $3 billion in our spend base, so reducing our cost. And we also had to let go of a lot of good people, and we had to close down a lot of factories. We had a very, very large manufacturing network, more than 80 factories worldwide, and we reduced that by roughly 20. And uh, you can say now we're into the next phase, where it's really about growing the top line, 
but also keep on optimizing. And we still have a lot of work to do on both, uh, both sides of that equation. And as you've had to shrink the workforce, close offices, uh, labs around the world, of course, Teva is incredibly important to the economy and to the culture of Israel. Um, people saying the company even referred to sometimes as Mother Teva. How has your relationship with the Israeli government been affected by these moves? So it's been really good. We had some discussions in the beginning where there was a bit of turmoil, but I think everybody understood that it was important to safeguard the long-term sustainability of the company. And uh, we still have our headquarter in Israel. I live in Tel Aviv. And uh, I think we have a really good relationship with the government. What's also very important is that during this whole restructuring, we were able to maintain our operational capability. We deliver more pharmaceutical products to the U.S. public than anybody else. You know, more than one out of every 10 product you go and, and, and get uh, as a generic is from Teva. So uh, we're very happy that we maintain the high quality and the high reliability, which is the backbone of, you know, modern healthcare. How would you uh, deal with uh, what we're trying to deal with in this country? And that is the, and there's, there's two sides to this. Number one is it's really the cheapest remedy in town if you can preempt the hospital stay. So pharmaceuticals can be the answer to all of our health care problems. But then again, the, the price inflation does seem to be out of line with everything else. What would you do? What would you, if you were President Trump or Congress, how would you handle this? So this is the, the billion dollar question, how to change Probably it. Because a hundred billion dollar yeah, question. Because it, it is, of course, as you know, better than anybody else, extremely complex the way the U.S. healthcare system is set up. And I think that complexity drives cost and it drives lack of transparency. So I think one simple thing that could be done was to increase transparency. I mean, getting more transparency on the net pricing, getting more transparency on, on all the middlemen who are not really either doing the real healthcare service or manufacturing the pharmaceutical product. I think that would uh, be something that could be done relatively easy. And transparency normally always helps to get better performance. So, so that's one simple thing I think that could be done. Although... The drug companies point at the middlemen, the middlemen point at the drug companies and the government. And it's hard to, to really, if, if you're a layman, it's hard to figure that out. I would say one thing which is beyond doubt, that is that the generic pricing in the U.S. is very low. Yeah. It's even lower than Europe. And it's also beyond doubt that the generics are providing a huge relief for the U.S. healthcare system. I mean, we just did, uh, had an independent study done that we also published today, which shows that in 2018, Teva supply products to the U.S. Uh, population reduced the cost with $41.9 billion. Right. And just the co-pay savings for the patients were around $6 billion. So it really matters to the industry and to the healthcare sector that this is happening. One thing that's been so tough for your industry, though, is that the prices of generic drugs are being depressed. So the drugs in that sector, in many cases, are getting too cheap. And we have a chronic drug shortage problem in this country. Um, what would you, how would you define the health of, of that sector and whether you can really operate and continue making all of these needed drugs? Yeah, so we, did, we had a, a very dramatic development in the U.S. where the prices of generics came down dramatically with the influx of new suppliers from India, from China, and so on. I think the last two years since, since I joined Teva, and I made it clear that that's unsustainable, that you just take prices to the bottom because then nobody will be able to supply and uh, we need stable supply, cheap drugs, but in stable supply at a good quality. And uh, we are reassuring, uh, or we are assuring that in the U.S. market. And we have a very good dialogue with the three big customers. And those are the three big buying groups. And they have realized that it's not only the cheapest price, because here you're talking cents, you know, a few cents per product. It's really also quality and stability in supplies that matters.
And I know we're almost out of time. I have to do one more question about the novel coronavirus and its potential effects on drug supply chains. We know a lot of generic drugs in particular may start in China with the uh, original ingredients. Do you see any disruption to the drug supply chain? So right now, for us, there's no disruption. Longer term, there might be a smaller disruption. But we are probably one of the only fully uh, full-value chain companies. So we do our own API for the most. Of course, we get some raw materials from China, some API. But we, we have what's called... Teva uh, API, and we sell to others as well. And that manufacturing is primarily in India and Europe, and that's sort of, at least for now, safeguarded from the coronavirus. Of course, we follow it very closely, taking care of the safety of our employees and securing supplies to patients. All right, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Schultz. Thank you uh, for being here. New, uh, Mrs. Terrell, Ms. Ms. What do you like? Well, Terrell is my maiden name. Uh oh. Okay, <laughs> Ms. Uh, thank you both. Uh, and coming up, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, wins New Hampshire, but it was close. Uh, and the market seems indifferent. Goldman Sachs Lloyd Blankfein uh, says that's a big mistake. We'll tell you why next. Senator Bernie Sanders uh, walking away from the New Hampshire. Uh, primary with a victory. Uh, Sanders has been surging in the polls, and yet the markets seem nonplussed. However, one person is sounding the alarm, a former Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein taking to Twitter saying that Sanders will uh, ruin our economy and that, in his words, uh, if I'm Russian, I go with Sanders this time around uh, to best screw up uh, the U.S. With us now, uh, Jimmy Petakoukis, economic policy analyst, the American Enterprise Institute, and a CNBC contributor. Now, Democrats still talking about Russia. Uh, Jimmy, it never gets old. Uh, it never gets old, does it? Uh, anyway, why do you think, and, and it, you know what, with, now that I think about it, for someone who, uh, who honeymooned in Moscow, maybe it makes sense in this context to talk about Russia. But why aren't the markets more worried about Bernie? Well, I think, one, I, I don't believe they, they believe that with uh, an unemployment rate at a 50-year low, maybe headed to a 60-year low, in the what will then be the 12th year of an economic recovery, that voters are going to vote for someone who's not just promising, uh, you know, it's time for a change, but he's going to change everything. I don't believe uh, Walsh thinks that's possible. And if he should get in, that he'll be able to do anywhere near what he promises. But I think what, what Lloyd Blankfein is saying is, look, at this guy wants $16 trillion in tax increases. He wants to break up all the major banks. He wants to break up all the major tech companies. Don't put it past him that he, he could get a lot of his agenda actually done. Well, just to me, it seemed weird that, that Blankfein was saying, you know, if they really want to s- screw up the U.S., last time they tried to screw up the U.S. by backing Trump, and this time if they want to really do it, they should back Sanders. But is 60-year is low unemployment, did, did they... Did they mess up trying to screw up the United States? This seems like they did a pretty crappy job in, in, in making very, things horrible here. It's a very low, Joe, it's a very low unemployment rate. It's a very low unemployment. Listen, I think politicians... Very high stock credit. market. I mean, very, is, is Russia right. happy with, with the damage they've inflicted by backing Trump? Well, to, 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 to flip around something that Al Gore used to say, uh, everything that should be up is up. Everything that should be down is down. We want low unemployment. That's what we, that's right. what we have. So, uh, no, that didn't work out so well. Uh, but clearly, Lloyd Blankfein is thinking uh, they might be more uh, they Jimmy, might be more accurate this time around. You you seem to be uh, falling back on that he he wouldn't have the House and Senate. So if he were Bernie were elected, he couldn't get done. What? But he could do stuff with regulations that would blow your mind. I'm, I, I mean, he's good for 
and I would hang this on somebody else. I'm not saying this myself. He's good for at least 30 percent sell off in the stock market. Don't you think if he if he were actually elected, don't you think? One, you have the fact that people would be surprised. So that's kind of that, that massive surprise, that kind of black swan stuff that's in the market. And then look, you have the regulation. If there's one thing we've learned over the past three years, that presidents have a lot of leeway when it comes to trade. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a protectionist. Uh, I think he would have learned from the president. You can do a lot as president to shut down trade. And listen, they could get a lot done on taxes. You know, you got that reconciliation. Uh, I think a wealth tax is probably unconstitutional, but you could could jack up taxes considerably. Yeah. Actually, I don't want to fall in the same trap as as people like Krugman and Steve Ratner, they ended up looking like jackasses, right? When they said that the market was going to go down 10, 20, 30 percent on Trump. We just don't know. I get, and I'm not going to make that same mistake. You know, right, I mean, there is this theory that, you know, what that, that hard Bernie Sanders, you know, all he wants is, you know, kind of the Scandinavian state, you know, bigger welfare state. Yeah. But, he, you know, he's not going to nationalize stuff. Uh, right. We'll see. Ben and Jerry's, maybe. I think that's what sort of already. Uh, yeah. so anyway, uh, Jimmy P. Is that, it's easier to say. Everyone does that, don't they? Jimmy uh, they P. Do. They yeah, do. CNBC, they I think Petacucus yes. is easy to say. Rolls it's a beautiful name. It is. It's Thank you. Name. All right, Jimmy. See you later. Coming up, uh, why the business community isn't going to be too happy uh, with the president's new budget, perhaps. That story is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The White House uh, budget has a surprise in store for the business community and maybe not be the good kind. Elon Mui is uh, with us, joining us from Washington. I I saw your report earlier and uh, was a little bit surprised, chagrined, Elon. (laughs) <laughs> well, the, the big the big piece of this here, Joe, is that the president's budget is supposed to be a fiscal wish list, but there are billions of dollars in corporate tax breaks that didn't make the cut, and that translates into more than $150 billion in tax cre- increases over the next several years. The biggest one is a change to R&D expensing, and that provision alone will cost businesses $120 billion. The ability to fully expense capital investments will also go away. That's another $38 billion. The formula for calculating the net interest deduction will also become less favorable to businesses and tax rates on certain international income are going up as well. So with potentially billions more dollars at stake here, everyone is waiting to see what will be in the president's new tax plan. Perhaps some of these measures will find a home there. But as of right now, it's not clear that they have a champion, Joe. I would talk to you more, uh, Ilan, but um, I've got 10 seconds. So I'm, I'm not going to do it, but maybe I'll see you tomorrow on Squawk Extenders. Yeah. Extenders. Thank you. <laughs> that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.